I really think you're going to like today's podcast because I'm going to talk to a guy who not only has got some great radio war stories, uh, he's a good friend of mine, he's got a great backstory, but he also got some good life lessons and professional lessons in there too. So even if you are in dentistry or you are a photographer or a CPA, I think you're going to take something away from this podcast by listening to a guy named Kevin Ralston. And Kevin and I have known each other in one way or another for over 30 freaking years. And he's got some great stories, including the police surrounding the radio station and the FBI being involved. And we're going to talk to Kevin this week on the podcast based on the book that has nothing to do with the book, but it's based on it. It's Radio War Stories, part of Take a Shower, Show Up on Time, and Don't Steal Anything. Let's get started. My guest today is, uh, when people say special guest, he really is a special guest and, and kind of close to my heart because the way that Kevin Ralston got into radio actually had something to do with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, of course, I love that story. That's my favorite thing you're going to talk about is how I had anything to do with <laughs> into radio. Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, well, let's start with this, so people will know who you are. Mm-hmm. You tell us where you work and what kind of a morning show that you do. I'm in South Florida. I'm in West Palm Beach, is where we do the show from. We're on a radio station that covers Fort Lauderdale uh, down into Miami. I'm on the KBJ show, which stands for Kevin, Virginia, and Jason. Got three main people on it, five people total. We've been in the market now, coming up on 22 years. So I've been here. Wow, 20. I didn't realize it had been that long, 22 years. Yeah, yeah, 22 years we've been uh, in South Florida. So, you know, got down here and loved this area and uh, decided to stick with it. And then a lot of career failures kept me here. So, you know, that's kind of the whole story of my life. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because, you know, you say your career failures keep you there. That's one of the reasons that I've stayed here is because I went from a huge station in Columbus to Phoenix where I got fired twice. I worked at a couple of stations that were not right for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and so I got fired twice. So one thing that I love about being at the same station is like I got pretty good job security and I don't have to move to Cleveland to start over somewhere. So, you know, there's that. It's really weird. You know, the one thing, the essence about radio is sometimes some people work in a town and sometimes they don't. And for whatever reason, I clicked here. I got South Florida. South Florida got me. And I don't think there's a lot of towns where I would click or a show would work. And for some reason, it's an odd anomaly. It works here. And it just stuck. Well, you do a really great clever and creative show and Kevin and I were talking and I've talked about this in the podcast before I don't listen to other radio shows because I don't like to be unduly influenced by other radio shows Mm -hmm. because I know what's going to happen if I listen to your show I would start talking like you I would start laughing like you I'd start saying well Kevin's show is better than mine so I need to do this bit that he's doing so what kind of show I mean I know I read your material because you and I trade ideas once in a while Mm -hmm. but what kind of show how would you describe your show to somebody who's never heard your show before I would say that our show is something we always try to keep everything light. It's irreverent. We want it to be outrageous. We want stuff that's going to kind of reach through the speakers and is going to kind of grab you and slam your face against the dashboard. So that's the kind of stuff that we try to do, stuff that stands out. I want to do stuff that also entertains me. I don't want to get into a groove with the content we do where I'm kind of bored with it. I don't want to execute it. So I want to do stuff that's going to make me laugh that I think has a great potential to be entertaining. 
And the whole formula with how I hired the people on my show was to me, I'm stable enough. And I wanted to look for people that were first funny, that we shared similar sensibilities as far as like what we thought was funny. But then also I really look for two dysfunctional people because I knew there would be a wealth of entertainment. And both of the people that I have on Virginia and Jason are massive screw ups and they always have some kind of problem going on that most people couldn't relate to because it's so outrageous, but it's all true and it's not scripted, but it sounds like it could be. You know, I love that because if everybody on the show was normal, and, and I think a lot of us DJs, we, we, we want to appear that we got our shit together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's better to let people know that we don't always have our shit together because, you know, I've, I've talked to some DJs who are like, well, I'm not going to talk about that. That's messed up. Or I'm not going to talk about my divorce. That's messed up. Or I'm not going to talk about, you know, uh, my wife's drinking because that's messed up. And it's like, no, that's, you know, some things are private, but I think that you also want to have you know, for lack of a better word, the, the show train wreck. And, normal is um, not entertaining. Nothing. That, no, it's not. Because they live a normal life. They want to hear a life that's not normal. Now, being the talent yourself, you have to realize that when you go out, people are going to look at you as a dysfunctional mess. And it does mess with other parts of our lives. And the comments you get on social media, people judge you like crazy. But you have to have a weird suspension of disbelief where you're living two lives where you realize maybe you're not that messed up, but the audience does see you as being a complete disaster. And like, you'll walk down the street and people will cross the street to the other side because they're afraid to be near you. So (laughs) to be truly entertaining, if your audience is not crossing the street, get away from you, then you're probably not doing it right. Oh, damn. I got to, I got to start taking drugs or something. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should get some sort of a really bad vice. Like, um, uh, I don't know. Vices are entertaining um, until you wind up in rehab and then can't do the show. God, no kidding. Well, let's go, you know, there's so many things that we can talk about. And the kind of the theme of the podcast is like radio war stories. Mm-hmm. But before we get to the radio war stories, I know you've got some and you got some, you know, some great stuff to talk about. But there was once a young man about 13 years old named Kevin Ralston that lived mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this 13 year old or so boy. I was a kid that um, got really good grades in junior high, and then I had a really strict mom, and I got very rebellious around the age of 14. So I went from being straight-A student to a complete dysfunctional mess. Somehow tripped into college and wound up at Ohio University. I'm on my seventh major, and I had a buddy that was doing a show at the local radio station. Nobody listened to it. It was one of those uh, ones that was done at the college radio station. And he brought me in. I started doing some writing, and I really started to like it, but I didn't think that it could be an actual career. And then when I went back home, I turned on WNCI, and they had the morning zoo on. And I heard a guy, Dave Ryan, that was on there, and I was listening to it. And everything I heard about this Dave Ryan, I'm like, this guy sounds just like me. Like I could totally do this. And so even though it's kind of flattering that you inspired me to get in radio, it's kind of insulting because it was kind of your dysfunction and your jackassery (laughs) that really kind of inspired me. I'm like, that guy kind of sounds like a loose cannon loser, kind of like myself. I'm like, I think I could do what Dave Ryan does. And to me, I've always just marveled at your creativity and your genius. And so even today, I'm always looking at your stuff. I'm like, gosh, man, Dave, you just have such an oddball, quirky way of looking at stuff. And it was such a great challenge for me to try to do what you did that 
that's really what kicked me in the ass and kind of got me going. And you gave me direction and I zoomed right back to Ohio University and I knew it. And luckily they had a really good telecommunications school. And I have been on that path ever since hearing you and listening to you on the morning zoo. So I, I, I tell everybody this. I really do honestly owe my entire career to you. And I appreciate that. And you'll never know how much I do. Man, that, that is seriously, that's so flattering. I think that, you know, we all have that person that we go, I want to be that person. And I have a story about that too. But um, uh, it's so funny because, you know, I was like 23, 24 years old back then. And uh, I <clears throat> didn't know what I couldn't do. So I did everything. Yeah. And uh, we did all kinds of like, I mean, we made fun of local celebrities and I would never do that now because I didn't know that you shouldn't do that. I mean, yeah. I used to like make fun of people on TV, make fun of people in the newspaper, make fun of local sports figures. And because I didn't know that you shouldn't do that. Yeah. So, uh, and it was just fun. And I think it was, you know, it was a really good show. And I, and I worked with some really funny, talented people too. And I worked with some people that were giant pains in the ass, but I always loved that. You know, it's uh, it's kind of like um, there was a Cub Scout that came through the radio station one time when I was about 19 years old and uh, he's still in radio all these years later, he decided that day when he was a Cub Scout that he wanted to get into radio because he came to the radio station. So that's really flattering, Kevin. Thank you very much. Um, along the way, didn't you, you, I, I'm going to start with like a war story here. The laughs per minute. Now I know we're kind of jumping around here, but you had a boss that said you didn't have enough laughs per minute on your show. I had never heard of this term before. And I had never heard Howard Stern when I'd heard you and you were really the first irreverent talent that I had ever heard. And I had become familiar with Howard Stern uh, later when I'd gone to New York and got more into the business. And so Howard Stern was on in our market. And so my program director, who was a relatively new guy in the business too, he sat me down and he would say, you know what, your show is not funny enough to win. He said, Howard Stern has seven laughs per minute and you're averaging not even one. And I'm like, <laughs> well, and, and so I'm kind of looking around like, what, is there a laugh meter? I, how do you judge a laugh per minute? Does that mean I laugh or does that mean I make you laugh? Or what is a laugh per minute? <laughs> then he could never necessarily tell me what it was. And to this day, I think it's still just a bullshit made up statistic that this guy came up with. But he would sit me down and when we would air check, which is a painful thing, if you've never been through it, just think about any kind of job critique that you ever do. In radio, they're sitting down, they're playing back audio, and this guy was so expressive in his face. He would tear at his face and rip at his hair when he would hear things that we were doing that was not funny. And every, every day, I would come out of the studio, and his office was right next to the studio. And he would have his heads buried in the palms of his hands on his desk as I exited oh. the studio. And so that's what I had to look forward to every single day. Five minutes later, I was in there, and he was counting my laughs per minute. And I, I think the best I ever did was two in one minute. And that was the funniest break I ever had, at least to that point of the show. And so that was my first experience with that guy. And it got more toxic and contentious and finally got to the point where he went to the operations manager and he said, I have hired the worst talent in the planet. And he said, either he goes or I go. And he laid down the ultimatum. And finally, and thankfully, the operations manager said, all right, dude, you're fired. And he fired the PD and kept me. Wow. That, yeah. That's a great ending to that story. So my first question is, 
you were were you new in doing mornings back then? Were you really bad, mm-hmm. or was he just a terrible program director, coach, mentor, leader? Oh no, I was I was terrible. I mean, let me let me not you know I, I probably wasn't even really legitimately getting one laugh per minute. It was the first show <laughs> that I had ever done. I had been a co-host, and I came to West Palm Beach for kind of a fresh start. I wanted to start in a smaller market and kind of you know figure out how to do it. So yeah. But when you're brand new at something, you really need somebody to nurture you and to yeah. you know, kind of stoke your ego. And it was the exact opposite of that. It was, you know, he was expecting me day one to be Howard Stern. And clearly I wasn't going to be that. So, yeah, I mean, rightfully so. I was six laughs per minute behind Howard Stern every uh, minute. But I needed somebody to try to coach me up to try to get to two or three laughs per minute and not somebody that was going to rip their hair out when they heard every break I did. That is, you know, I get such a visual on that one. And by the way, I think I can confirm I've never heard the laughs per minute guideline, rule, gauge, anything like that before. Well, the I've thing definitely that's heard fun. that bit wasn't that funny. I've heard that that bit was too long with no punchline, <laughs> but I've never heard. And I got a lot of those. I got a lot of things that just kind of fall flat. Um, but I never heard the laughs per minute. Thing. Well, here, here was the embarrassing thing for me because I didn't really know. I'm a brand new talent. And so we had this big radio convention. It's, it's, it's called Morning Show Boot Camp. So it comes I, up on every every podcast we do. Morning Show Boot Camp comes up. So even okay. Bobby Brown's brought it up. So yes. Okay. So I'm at Morning Show Boot Camp, and I'm running into all these great talents, the Dave Ryan's and whatever. And I think this is something that everybody knows. So this is my icebreaker. I'm walking up to Kid Craddock in Dallas, and I'm like, "So how many laughs per minute are you at?" <laughs> <laughs> and all these great morning talents are like, "What the hell are you talking about? What's laughs per minute?" Yeah, I, I'm completely confused because I think that's how you judge every great morning show is everybody wow. knows their LPMs. And that was it. We got to the point with my program director. We didn't call it last per minute. It was, so what's your LPMs today? So we had it abbreviated. It was kind of like your miles per hour MPHs. We had the LPMs. So I thought everybody knew what their LPM was. I go around all of morning show boot camp. My first impression was like, who's this guy talking about last per minute? That is so classic. I just love that. Um, when you, you know, there's so many things I want to ask you about. We have another kind of a similarity where our paths crossed and it turned out good for me, but then bad for you. <laughs> I was offered a job in Miami and the story mm-hmm. with me, you know, here's a radio war story. They, they let my, after 19 years of working here, they let my contract run out. They just let it run out. Yeah. And it's so, it's like really insulting to be like, if Tom Brady all of a sudden found himself like, well, nobody wanted him to be like, what? So not that I'm anything like Tom Brady, but I've been here successfully for 20 years. I let my contract run out. So I, I was like, <laughs> are you going to offer me? So I, I could look for another job. So I got a job mm-hmm. offer at a station in Miami and they flew me down and they flew my wife down. They took us to a nice steakhouse with like the entire management team. And, uh, and they gave me like a big fucking fruit basket in my hotel room. And they gave me like a station jacket and they blew me and they gave me a hand job and, and it was awesome. And, um, and, and, and I, I didn't want to go to Miami though, because I didn't want, I didn't want to, my kid was still in school. I didn't want to yeah. go to Miami. So yeah. I came back, but I didn't tell my boss that I didn't want to go. I said, I got a job offer in Miami. Mm-hmm. So they signed me, but then here comes Kevin into the story. So pick it up where I turned down the job. They offer it to somebody else. Well, that's funny you say that because I we were the same company at the time. And same thing had happened to me. They let my contract run out. 
which had never happened before. So maybe it was just something that was happening in our same companies at that time with the talent that was coming up for whatever reason. And so, you know, you need leverage. You need something different to go on. And my goal always uh, when I got to West Palm Beach was to incorporate Miami because it, it is very close and we have bleed over and it's really kind of the same mentality and everything. And so I didn't realize that you had necessarily gone in and turned down the job at first when I got into it. And I went in there. It seemed great. It seemed like the right thing to do. We had this thing where they promised that we were going to be able to do the show in Miami, but then we'd syndicate it to West Palm Beach. And, you know, there was a little bit of an overlap that uh, was going to happen. So we took the job and the guy that hired us, the guy that, you know, gave you the hand job in the fruit basket decided that after he hired us three days later, he takes off to go take a job in Los Angeles with CBS. And so we were promised the syndication back to West Palm. We were promised a marketing budget, all these kind of great things. I was promised a hand job in a fruit basket. I never got it. That was, <laughs> that was on deck, but he flew away. Maybe that was it. He's tired of giving out hand jobs. So he takes off and I am stuck now with new management and a corporate guy that came in who was going to make us into that great Miami show. Whereas before it was, you guys are great the way you are. And that's always a problem, especially, you know, at this point we had been a show for 14 years together and had done what we had done with the successes we had. And it's kind of hard to completely revamp a show that's been doing what they've done for 14 years. You bet. And somebody's trying to make you a show that you're not used to being. Yes. And what they wanted was a show that was playing a lot of music, which we played no music where we were at the station before. Yep. Yep. And they also wanted us to be Hispanic, which I am all white bread gringo. I have not a drop of Hispanic blood in me. So that was a problem too. Other than getting a great tan and a Spanish accent, there was no way that we could be the show that they wanted us to be for that station. <laughs> right. So that's pretty much where we were. And then we kind of went through all the pains of having corporate management try to make us something where they said, you've got to be known for something. So one day somebody in the office had heard a bit that we did and said it to this corporate program guy. And it was a bit that none of us on the show really liked. And it was unfortunate that they did like it because that corporate programming guy said, okay, to be known for this bit now, you need to do the same bit every single hour of every single show. Oh, no. Yes. Do you and, remember what the bit was? Can you Do you want to share with it what yeah, the bit was? It was called Headphone Karaoke, where you simply just put on headphones and you sing a song, which is mildly entertaining if you do that bit, I don't know, once every six weeks. But when yeah, you're, so, you're, so people can't, you can hear the music in your headphones, but you people, listeners that are watching or his, listening, they only hear you singing acapella, just your voice. Right. It's a bit that we haven't even done now for four years. So, you yeah. know, to have that be the bit that is our signature and what we do yeah. and what we're known oh. for when it's not at all what your show is, yeah. immediately there were just so many things that was set up where this is just not going to work. How far into this job, how long were you in Miami, you know, like, you know, you go in your first day and whether your first day is rough or whether it's great, you know, it's still great because it's like, yeah, maybe it wasn't perfect. But, you know, how long were you in Miami before you looked at each other and said, oh, shit, this is not working? Okay. We had, we had different stages. Stage one was three huh. days in, the guy quits. I'm like, I told him, I'm like, guys, we could be in trouble. 
Two days after that, the CEO of the company decides she's going to kill the syndication back to West Palm. And you know what? Oddly enough, to break that news, they did give us a fruit basket. So I got a fruit <laughs> basket with the announcement that we've killed your syndication back to your original market. Oh, God. After the first show, I knew content-wise we were going to be in serious trouble uh, because they did not like what we were doing. And they said, okay, we clearly, it was kind of like we were a wild stallion and they had to break us so that we could gallop the right way. And wow. it got to a point where it was really crazy and bad. And I felt bad for our local PD in the market because he was getting pressure from the corporate level. And you could tell it was just stressing him out. And I remember when I knew this was kind of the weirdest day. Almost every day that we were there was like another episode of The Office. There was just something bizarre that was happening. And <laughs> we were being instructed to play more and more music. It went from two songs an hour to four songs an hour. Here we are at six songs an hour. And oh, that's, that's a lot for, I mean, that might not sound like a lot if you're not in radio, but that's quite a bit because it doesn't really leave you a lot of time to do the fun stuff that we all love to do, that we got into radio to do. Right. Especially for a show that was playing no music, our styles radically changed. And the problem for us too, that you got to realize is we had an audience in West Palm beach that could still hear us in Miami. In fact, we still were number one in West Palm beach on a Miami station. That's how close they overlap. Wow. Okay. So an audience that knew us for 14 years playing no music is now every day letting us know with every break, how they don't like the changes we're making and how worse our show is getting every single day. So you've got that playing in your mind. So your audience is telling you that knows you that your show's getting worse and worse. While at the same time, you've got corporate telling you that your show sucks and you're not getting any better day by day. So, you know, just having that, that, that mind mess that you're trying to deal with on a daily basis became a struggle. And really the final day where I knew that there was just no going forward and it was over, oddly enough, it was Halloween. And at some radio stations, people decide that they're going to dress up and do costume stuff. And our program director, the local guy that was getting the pressure, and he was already tweaky. He had to probably be on some kind of you know calming medication that was just trying to bring <laughs> him down because you could tell he had this neurosis and a twitch and everything else. He decided that he was going to dress up, but he must have gone to a last minute costume shop because he didn't get a Dracula costume that fit. He wore a cape that only came halfway down his back and he had teeth that looked like they were made for a four year old. So his vampire teeth don't fit and he's got on a sawed off cape and he comes into my office and he sits down and I had this office that had a window so people in the hall could see. So the rest of my show is pacing up down the hall because they know this meeting is not good. And he's in there telling us how the testing has come back from our bits. Our bits aren't working. And now we're going to have to go to 10 songs an hour. And he's already kind of an animated guy that is on maybe some kind of medication. And so he's in there with these hands flailing in the air and this sawed off vampire cape. And so I just sat there and it's one of those really surreal moments where you realize you're taking the hardest critique of your entire career to a guy who's in a kid's vampire costume. <laughs> oh, God. What a moment. Oh, my God. And that was pretty uh, much the end of Miami for us. How long were you in Miami before you said, we got to get out of here? Well, we had signed for a year, and so we were stuck. And we knew after the first three months they started putting in more music and it started getting worse. I think we were on the air for about seven or eight months 
And our audience started getting more and more vocal. And I think that our silence was starting to say a lot and they're reading between the lines. And they kind of looked at us as a show that had been captive and we were sending out signals to them for them to act. So <laughs> they started by crashing the Facebook page of this brand new radio station. By the way, they'd flipped and just went top 40. And so they're writing all these terrible messages. And so the radio station decides they're going to start deleting every message talking about how they suck and how they're ruining our show. And that just inspired the people more and more. And for us, in a sense, the blessing in disguise was we always had a good fan base, but they actually galvanized themselves and came up with their own name and Facebook and they started meeting and they were coming up with all these strategies and they started calling themselves KVJ Nation. And so it finally ended with one day after them crashing the website, Facebook pages, they were protesting out front of the radio station. One day, somebody dropped an M80 explosive in the mailbox at the radio station and blew it up. Holy and that was, that was the day they said, get the fuck out of here and don't come back. <laughs> and so it kind of, that kind of worked in your, it very much worked in your favor because it wasn't working for either of you guys. Right. So yeah. when your audience blows up the station's mailbox, they usually let you go on that day. So <laughs> we we wound up sitting out for three months and we already, when we went to Miami, we kind of knew uh, the station we we're on now was always going to be kind of the plan B if things didn't work out. Sure. And so luckily they stepped up and it worked out. And, and the thing that worked out for us is the station we're on now has that strong signal and covers Miami thoroughly and Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach. So it's really kind of ultimately the best thing. We didn't take that offer initially because of the way markets are set up. We would have had to sit out an entire year to cross the street yeah. because it's technically a West Palm Beach radio station. So it, it all worked out in the end but I think we've all gone to a radio station and, you know, if you're not in radio, maybe you've gone to a job that you're like, oh man, I am going to love working at 3M. I'm going to love my new job at, you know, Target Corporation. And mm -hmm. then maybe you get to 3M and then maybe a few days later you're like, oh shit. I mean, I worked at a station in Phoenix where I was, you know, pretty excited, but I also, all, I took the job because I'd just gotten fired in Phoenix and I didn't want to pack up and move because I'd only been there a year and a couple of months. So yeah. I moved across town to a station that I probably shouldn't have gone to, was there for basically two miserable years, miserable years. Mm -hmm. And we never caught on. And then I got fired. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, but it was a blessing. I mean, the, the fact that you got out of Miami, look at you now, you're back mm -hmm. where you love to be and your show is successful and, and it works. I want to ask you this one, because when you talk about, you know, dropping M80s in the mailbox, it reminded me somehow of bits gone bad. Um, and that's one of the things that, that we seem to bring up on this podcast with everybody I've talked to is bits gone bad. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you have anything that comes to mind right away. Last week I had talked to Phil Luce and uh, he had talked about, you know, the, the uh, best seats in that worst seats in the house to the best seats in the house where they had people sit on toilets in a park and drink water until people puked. And it was a horrible bit um, uh, there. You know, there've been we, we'd get a car giveaway where we had people live in the car and mm -hmm. the last person who got out of the car won the car. Well, we didn't say in the rules that you can't physically threaten the other people with death as one of the rules. So this guy told the other people in the car, if you don't let me win, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to fucking murder you. I'm not fucking kidding. I'm going to fucking murder you. And they're like, oh my God, is this guy serious? Well, I'm not going to play with this fucking why, you know, psycho. So yeah. they got out of the car and he won. 
and the contest lasted about eight hours, and we thought it would last eight days. So <laughs> does anything come to mind, Kevin, when I ask, like, worst bit, worst promotion, anything like that? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I've got so many uh, that um, <laughs> probably one that really turned into something that I, I didn't see happening. There was a, a bit. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought this is a, kind of a basic bit where – um, it was something that we had seen where you take a cell phone and would somebody, a stranger, just answer a random cell phone if it were ringing? This is kind of earlier in the days of cell phones. And so it was kind of a, a novel concept where there were still pay phones. And if a pay phone were ringing, somebody might walk up and pick it up and answer and talk to it. Yeah. So we thought, OK, would somebody do that with a cell phone? So we went into a Cracker Barrel and we took a cell phone and we taped it up underneath the sink to see if when we started calling it, anybody would answer. Well, <laughs> we started calling the cell phone, it's live on the radio, and nobody's answering, the bid's going completely nowhere. And probably about 10 minutes later, our studio is surrounded by cops and they come storming in. Well, oh, apparently, God. apparently what had happened, somebody saw the phone, let the manager at Cracker Barrel know and the manager called the cops. The cops called the FBI because they're like, we have a detonator at a Cracker Barrel. Somebody's trying to blow up the fucking restaurant. So oh. they clear out a Cracker Barrel. So all these people who are, you know want to eat their grits are out in the rocking chairs out front <laughs> as they clear out the whole thing. And they were able to tra trace the phone back to us. Luckily, the manager of the Cracker Barrel listened to the show, knew the show. We were able to cool everything down. But that was oh. one... Where you talk about radio bits that can completely get away from you, that was one where I did not ever think that a cell phone taped under a sink at a Cracker Barrel would come off as a detonator, but that's exactly what it was. Well, you know, who would have thought? It's one of those things where you just can't anticipate that, and then next thing you know, it's just like, I mean, literally blows up. That's a great, Kevin, we should have started with that story, because that is a great <laughs> that is a great story. <laughs> I love it. Um uh, what about, um, uh, you know, we all have somebody in the business that we really looked up to and we were, and, you know, not to get all motivational or anything, mm -hmm. but, but you know, a guy named John Zellner and John Zellner, yeah. I'm going to tell you my quick John Zellner story. John Zellner is like kind of a legendary radio figure and he's in management now and he's very kind and he's nerdy like us. And you can name any song from the eighties or nineties and he can tell you how long the intro is. So if you yeah. said something mm -hmm. like, you know, like a prayer by Madonna, yeah. he'd say like, okay, that's an 18 second intro and it's four <laughs> minutes and 22 seconds. Like you're a nerd, but I love you. So, yeah. uh, but John Zellner, um, uh, Basically, I found out that I was going to get fired in Phoenix because my wife saw John Zellner at the airport and she knew him and my boss was picking John Zellner up at the airport. And so she knew that something was afoot. Pretty soon John Zellner was in and uh, the rest of the staff was out. So but John Zellner mm -hmm. changed your you you were you were having a rough time and and tell us the story about that if you can. Yeah. You know, it really is the people that are in your life and, and you're blessed and it really does. I think any success story, you've got to have somebody that was paramount in your life that helped guide you on the right path. And uh, there's probably so many people that could have and would have been successful, but they didn't have that person in that place in their career. And I was lucky that I ran into John Zellner. It was a haphazard accident kind of thing where I just wound up taking a job based on another connection in Fresno, California, and John was the PD at the time. And so that's really how I started my career. So I was blessed to my first two stations. I was with John Zellner and uh, he was a major part in the early part of my career. And two different times, and I think this is true of anybody who winds up being a success, there's gonna be a time somewhere where you will 
want to quit on your dream. And some people probably will. And I did twice. And both times, John Zellner, the first time he called me out, in fact, I turned in my letter of resignation and everything was said. And John looked at it and he's like, come on, man. He's like, dude, you're not quitting. He's like, you are getting back into this thing. And, and both times, John talked to me and gave me the pep talk I needed at that moment. Because if I would have had last per minute PD, I would have been out the door <laughs> and I would have been in another field and I never would have looked back. And, you know, the fact that not only once, but twice, John really kind of pulled me back in and motivated me and was able to fluff me back up and get my confidence going again. You know, everybody, you really need to have those kind of people in your life. So, yeah, if it weren't for John Zellner, uh, being able to do that and uh, I would not be in this industry and wouldn't have the success that I did. That's a really interesting observation that a lot of people don't have that person in their life. And so, therefore, they struggle. And, mm -hmm. you know, they might eventually get to where they want to be or get to somewhere they're happy with. But um, a lot of people don't have that person in their life. No. And, uh, and, and you know, and it, man, it makes you glad you did. I think, um, you know, I've had I've had some people in my life. I mean, honestly, um, uh, not every radio manager that I ever worked for was an inspiration. Mm -hmm. But enough of them were where it was like, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. You well, were homeless living in New York mm -hmm. uh, and you... I mean, how does somebody go to New York and plan things so terribly that they end up homeless? Kevin, how did this happen? I was from a really small town. I was from actually outside of Columbus. It was a little podunk town called Logan. It was kind of the butt of the joke that everybody would make. If you were from Columbus, that was a big city. Logan was the small town. It was in Appalachia. It was a poor area. Everybody there was hillbillies. We didn't get the big city. We had one McDonald's, we had two stoplights. And I only knew when I first got into radio, I wanted to learn from the best. And so here I am, small town kid, and I realized New York City was the biggest market you could go to. And the biggest station in the biggest market was a station called Z100. And so I, on my own dime, I flew to New York City. I did, I can't even believe you, you used to have to actually interview to be an intern. So I did an interview uh, a guy named Steve Kingston was the program director and uh, he comes and he impresses upon me to come to New York City. And so I did. And one of the first events I worked, the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup in 1994. And I went there and didn't know anything better. And I'm from a small town. We don't lock our front doors. We're trusting, you know, everybody. I had no idea there were evil people in the world. And so when I go to New York City, I'm working the ticker tape parade. It's like the Canyon of Heroes that they call it. And it's wall to wall okay. people. And here I am with the radio station down in the mix of all these people. I didn't know any better, but all the money I had for my rent and everything I was going to do, didn't even have an apartment yet, but I was going to go get one later that day. So I have all my money in my side pocket. I'm wearing these cargo shorts with a Velcro uh, latch on it. And I think my money is safe in there. Well, I'm standing there and somebody's nudging me really hard on my left side. And so I'm kind of nudging him back. I'm like, dude, like, what's wrong with you? So I'm fighting with this guy on my left side, not realizing on my right side is my wallet. Somebody who was a pickpocket was so good, they lifted up the Velcro. I didn't feel it. They snaked their hand all the way down my side pocket, lifted my wallet out, and actually nicely refastened my pocket. So <laughs> when oh, I'm wow. walking away, I realize here I am in New York City, and I now do not have a dollar to my name. All my money is completely gone. And 
I was somebody that all the money I'd had to that point, I had earned. I had done jobs since I was third grade with a paper route to working at grocery stores and all that stuff. And I never wanted to take money from my parents. And I didn't want to ever be a loser or a quitter. And so I didn't ask my parents for any more money. And I realized the only option I had was the car that was there with me. And so I went and that night I just curled up in the back and I learned how to make it happen. I realized that the general manager had a shower in his office. And at a certain time I could get in the building and everybody was gone by like nine or 10 PM. So I would go in after that time, I take a shower at night. And I knew because the radio station always had celebrities that most mornings they would have bagels in the studio. So (laughs) I would go in, in the break room, I would stock up on bagels and I had piles of bagels. And that's all I lived on was New York style bagels that I kept in my car that was parked out front of the radio station. That is so crazy, you know. And, and you know what the weirdest part of that's not the weirdest, but a weird part is a general manager having a shower in his office. Right, that's, I know. That's so bizarre to me, but anyway, <laughs> it worked out. It worked out well for you. So you know what? Um, you you lived in your car. You you know things happen in New York, uh, and things have been happening for you. I mean, pretty much ever since then, you've been the same job for nineteen years. Uh, very successful. You're loaded. You drive an expensive imported sedan. <laughs> Um, you probably have, you don't have a pool in your own backyard, but you probably live near somebody who has a pool in their yard. We so, pool, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay, yeah. well, mm-hmm. see, you're doing pretty fucking well. Yeah. So, so share with us. I mean, some of the things that people don't get, I mean, there's certain things that, you know, I wrote a book, it's called take a shower, show up on time and don't yeah. steal anything mm-hmm. to help people learn some things that, you know, you might not get. And uh, there will always be somebody who doesn't show up on time and wonders why they don't get ahead or somebody who steals from work and then wonders why they don't get promoted or somebody who doesn't bother to take a shower and, uh, you know, comes into work smelly and then wonders why they never get treated the way they think. So what have you learned? What, you know, what, what advice? I mean, again, Mm. what, you know, not to get too motivational, what can I learn from Kevin Ralston that I can take away from this podcast? Well, the, the easiest and fastest thing I can say is from the stories that I've just told is you have to go all out on a dream. You have to invest everything in it. You have to believe in it. You can't go halfway in and expect to have the kind of success that you expect to have and that you've dreamt of having. You have to really put everything out. You have to have the willingness to sleep in your car, um, to drive cross country for just an interview. Those are the kind of things that really made me. And I, I was never very talented. I mean, when I first got into college radio, I had been there for about a year and I still couldn't get past weekend overnights. I always had the worst shift. I was always regarded as the worst DJ, but I just kept at it. I just kept working. I just wouldn't quit. And I even had people like with the John Zellner story that would be there to motivate me even when I had a problem, which is a lesson to everybody because you may be that John Zellner to somebody else and not realize it. And that's why you need to look around for people that you are superior to or ahead of and encourage them. If they genuinely deserve it, you need to let people know. Cause I think too often we hold on to our compliments and to our praise. And so you just have to really go all out. You have to sell out to get your dream because if it's really a big dream, the bigger the dream, the more you've got to sell out and you got to expect you're going to have a lot of failure and you're going to have a lot of setbacks and you're going to have a lot of tough nights where you're sitting in your car eating stale New York City bagels where you want to just get and drive home, that you just got to say, I got to keep going on, man. 
You know, I think that's so true. I think that I'm, I'm thinking as you say this, I'm thinking about everybody I know that's really been successful. You look at somebody like, you know, Bobby Bones, who was on the podcast and mm-hmm. um, and I didn't know Bobby at all until I read his book over Christmas. And the guy is a maniac when it comes to being driven and work and sacrifice. And it's like, Bobby, do you ever get a chance to roam around your giant mansion and walk <laughs> bare feet on your luxurious carpets? Because yeah. I think Bobby works all the time. And I really admire that. And I'm not saying you have to work all the time. And I don't think you are either. But I think there's a lot of people who go, who don't quite realize how much work it really does take Mm -hmm. to make your dreams happen. And it really does take a lot of work. I think that people will look at somebody like a Kevin Ralston or a Bobby Bones and go, well, it's pretty easy. I mean, you make it look easy. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't know all the years that you've gone into making it look easy. It's like, okay, I'll use Tom Brady again. Tom Mm -hmm. Brady makes it look easy. Tiger Woods makes it look easy, mm-hmm. but it's because of all the years and years that they spent to get to a point where it is, you know, it does look easy. Yeah. You got to have that motivation. I mean, truly, I think it does start too that you got to feel a fire and a burning passion because if you don't have that passion that's going to drive you, it's, it's hard to get to an elite level at anything where you are just not driven like a madman and you're working harder than anybody else. And for most people, you know, people will talk about, and there were people that were a lot more talented than me when it came to radio. But honestly, talent isn't anything if it's not willing to work. And eventually the people who are willing to work will pass talent. And so you have to realize that. And if you don't have the work ethic, your talent means nothing. And you have to have that burning desire to want it, that you will sacrifice about anything to get there to do it. You know, that's so true. I read on a program director's wall one time, it's your attitude, not your aptitude that determines your altitude. So in other words, mm-hmm. if you work your ass off, it's probably going to outdo talent. And I th- I had a conversation, I think it was with Fallon this morning. Um, uh, and Fallon, you know, if you almost everybody listening to this, this podcast knows who Fallon is. She does mornings with me on, on KDWB. Mm-hmm. And I think it was her I was having a conversation with that there are so many people who are um, really good, but they don't want to work very hard. Like they might be a really talented musician or they might be a really talented athlete or really talented DJ, but they don't really want to work that hard. And uh, well, then that talent's not going to, or, you know, it serves you well enough, but it's never going to take you all the way to the top. So, yeah, it's, it's really tough. I, I think the only other lesson that, you know, you could have in there is surrounding yourself with great people. And that is the one thing you want to do where sometimes you can find a talented person who's around a lot of hard workers and they can maybe make up the gaps. And so when it comes to putting together an ensemble show, like what you and I do, oftentimes when I'm bringing somebody in, I try to recognize where our weaknesses are and try to fill in those gaps so that you can make that happen. And so that is why it is really key too, because I don't think anybody gets to a level of success on their own. It takes a team It takes people that are helping you out and the right people. And so you have to be very particular with who you surround yourself with. But if you get the right team, then they can get you to the right place. You know, it's really true. I think um, I've I've definitely hired some people who I thought they were the right person. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks down the road, I'm like, oh, my God. They yeah. played a person in the interview. They played me in the interview and right. made me think that they were somebody that they're not. And it's like, oh, it's kind of like you discovering that Miami job was like, oh, not yeah. what you hoped it would be. It's the craziest uh, thing. I've seen people that interview really well in this industry. When I worked in Kansas City, we had a guy that had a, the best air check tape. He had a great interview. And then he came in day one. You're like, who is this guy? And I think it probably happens in any line of work. 
Yeah, I'm sure. Where you um, uh, you, you hire somebody and they just turn out to be somebody completely different. Well, yeah. Kevin, listen, it was um, it was so great to talk to you. Um, uh, thanks for sharing all your stories. You know, it's funny because a lot of these radio guys, I see them maybe once a year or so. Uh, when we go to that morning show convention, morning show boot camp, but they didn't have it last year, and who knows whether they're going to have it this year. But uh, you know, hopefully, you and I, our paths will cross again soon when we both get offered the same shitty job somewhere, <laughs> and uh, and then well, maybe you'll be the one who turns it down, and I'll be the dummy who takes it this time. So you know, yeah, my know. life lesson: don't ever take a job that Dave Ryan has turned down. <laughs> and we'll leave it with that kevin thanks so much for being on the podcast and uh and continued success in south florida it was an honor buddy thank you i hope you enjoyed kevin as much as i enjoyed having him on you know it, it's it's funny because i get to the end of every one of these podcasts and i'm like you were great you were my favorite so far but it's like well then i go back and I'm like oh well, he was really good too oh she was really good too so i've loved all of them uh and um uh, thanks to the radio peeps who have been on and if you are a radio peep yourself no we don't call ourselves that we really don't say ever say radio peeps uh but if you are in radio and you want to be on the podcast drop me a little email to uh, dave ryan at kdwb.com for radio war stories hey it's all based on the book take a shower show up on time and don't steal anything and uh, i'm proud to say the book is sold out i think i sold about five thousand copies it did take about five years to sell them all but i'll just tell you a really quick story on the uh opening the book release party or whatever it was held at the hard rock cafe at the mall of america and uh, I remember I got there and they had like, okay, the Mall of America, it's on the bottom floor by Nick Universe. So there's a patio that mimics an outdoor patio, but it's actually outdoors in uh, Nick Universe. So it's indoors. So I get there and they're having the book release party on the outdoor patio. And I go in the back gate and I look out in the mall and there's this long line of people. And... It didn't even occur to me, and I thought, oh, they must be lined up for something, a ride or something's weird. They're all adults. But it didn't occur to me at all until later I realized they were in line for my book and to say hi and to get an autograph. And I think back to that moment, and I think, holy crap, all those people were there for my book. Well, the funny thing about it was I worry to this day because I never acknowledged them. If I'd known they were there for my book, I would have gone over and said, oh, my God, thanks for getting in line. You waited in line for this. But I looked over. They looked over at me. Some looked at me, and I gave them a blank stare because I didn't know who they were. Again, I thought they were lined up to get into, like, I don't know, a store or something. So why am I telling you this story it has nothing to do with what we're talking about except that the book is about five years old. And thanks for buying it if you have it. If you don't have it, you're going, oh, my God, my life is over. I can't get it. It's sold out. Uh, uh, uh. It is also available on Kindle, and there's plenty of Kindle copies left. All right, that's it for the podcast. Drop a line, send an email to Dave Ryan at kdwb.com, and we'll see you next time on another Radio War Stories episode of Take a Shower. Show up on time and don't steal anything. <laughs>